Hello and welcome to this episode of the PE Podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Arthur Charvonia, who's the Chief Executive at Bayburg and Mid Suffolk District Councils. This is another insightful episode, really focused around leadership and the responsibility in local government. It was making a difference in people's lives that attracted Arthur firstly to law and then into local government. His career in law taught him invaluable skills for his career as a leader advocating, presenting, negotiating, among others. As a leader, Arthur feels tremendous amount of responsibility to not only his staff, but every resident, business and visitor to his community. He's very much a people person who thoroughly enjoyed the camaraderie at boarding school and emphasises being a leader as a human, using common sense, trusting people enough to take their own advice at face value. Please do enjoy this episode as we get to know the person behind the job title. So, Arthur, um, you're a qualified barrister, um, so you've done a law degree at university, and now you're the chief executive of a joint council. How did that happen? That's a long and convoluted story, but, but essentially, <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. When I, was, when I was at school, what I wanted to be was a barrister, went down that route, um, really enjoyed it, still, still would enjoy that kind of work. Um, but the nature of being a barrister and the nature of particularly doing legal aid work is not very conducive with having a family and certainly not when you're a, a junior barrister and so because i started a family relatively young we took the decision that actually having some paid employment might be a good idea um, so that led me to working for the police and yep. so for a while i was working in-house for the police as a as a as a lawyer not doing criminal work but doing their civil work so okay, things so like things. uh shotgun licenses when people have been bad and they need to have them taken away from them um antisocial behavior type work um, particularly there was a case please don't google it of um, bringing out an asbo against a herd of pigs in norfolk which i think you know that, you know that are not... everyone listening to this is now <laughs> going straight onto google I and going pigs asbo norfolk fortunately although the story got mentioned on how i got news for you i didn't so that was that was good oh um, perfect perfect i know brilliant i'm sure they had a and right laugh also... at that Absolutely. And then things like uh, civil cases where the police would get sued. So unlawful arrests, false imprisonment, those kind of things. Um, And so I was enjoying that, having a great time doing that for a long time. Um, But what it was clear to me is it was a bit career limiting because there's only a limited number of police forces. There's only a limited amount of that kind of work. And so when the Licensing Act came along, with a change to the licensing laws, where we're all going to sit outside and drink cafe style 24 hours a day, which of course is a bit of a joke at the moment with lockdown. But when yeah. that came along, I'd done a bit of licensing law as a, as a barrister. And I so took the opportunity to, to hop across into local government because the, the laws meant that local government became responsible for that work rather than the magistrates courts. Um, and, and then I never really looked back. So from my perspective, local government isn't that different. Um, it, it gives me what I need that I was getting as a barrister. So all those kind of skill yeah. sets of holding meetings, standing up in court, advocating, presenting. I do all that. Day oh, in, arguing. Day out, day out. arguing well. Exactly. Arguing. Absolutely. So I do that all day, day in, day out. I just don't have the judge stood in front of me anymore from that yeah. perspective. So it's a bit of a sort of odd circuitous route but I mean I certainly would advocate for everybody saying if you could in school do uh, a mini program around advocacy writing skills conference skills and negotiation skills they're all good solid business skills they would stand yeah. in good stead for any job um, and so I, th- I think that would be a really useful thing for the future particularly as our economy looks slightly uncertain 
Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Because I was thinking that with your background, you, know, you you'd probably be a, a pretty good salesman and like a pretty good um, kind of entrepreneur and and kind of having those, you know, those kind of legal skills or that that barrister skill. Um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty um, diverse. I, I whisper it quietly, but my brother's an estate agent, so yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if it all goes wrong in the council, at least you can uh, you know tap your brother up and say, yeah, go on, give us a job. Yeah. Um, so let, let's take it back a bit so um talk to me about your life growing up so 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 where are you from where'd you go to school how did you do in school that kind of thing so uh i grew up in north london um, yeah. in, in enfield and uh i had a relatively privileged upbringing so i didn't go to state school i didn't suffer any hardship at all in that regard i had a, a relatively easy life um, although I've got a brother, as I mentioned, he's a he's a half brother, so I, I lived a only child in terms of growing up. Yeah. Um, then went to boarding school, so I was in boarding school from the age of thirteen, which I both hated for about six weeks and then absolutely loved thereafter. Oh, really? And yeah. So, yeah, so, so what is it? Just that shock to the system, but then you've got at a young age freedom that you wouldn't have in your kind of parents' household. Yeah, I suppose you go from being the only child in the centre of your your parents' uh, eye, as it were, as living in, at home, to suddenly being uh, in a what at the time was a long dormitory with about sixty other boys, um, and uh, all of which who are basically older than you, um, all of which who've got marked their own territory already, and yeah, that's quite intimidating when you're slightly homesick yeah. initially, and then and then trying to get used to your new surroundings, but the camaraderie that then comes from that afterwards. Um, is builds really strong bonds and yeah and I certainly wouldn't wouldn't change that for for the world yeah of course of course um so so w were you academic in your board school or 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 going to boarding school do you kind of have to be academic because you know there, there's there's no divide between your kind of school life and your there is of course but your school life and your personal life but in terms of like the punishment perspective you're in the same building or the set of buildings and and so if you're not performing academically I'm sure that you know, making you go to detention or, or whatever the punishment would be is easier to enforce. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got no no escape from that. It's not like you can duck out or something in the same way. You're not likely to run away, particularly the, the school I was in. It was in the middle of nowhere in the countryside. Um, so you, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> so there's certainly, um, I suppose there's a degree of discipline instilled in it. I mean, it's not it's not prison. It's not um, it's not a miserable life at all. But it certainly means that there's a much more regimented way of life. Um, so things like homework, much more straightforward, because all those temptations that you might have if you were at home, particularly these day and age, just weren't there because you, everyone is doing their homework at the same time. You're all sat down, somebody's supervising you. And so it does mean that that just becomes much more of a, a routine. Was that you. like an extended class almost? Yeah, in some respects. Um, yeah, and it, it just meant that there was, it was supervised by other pupils. So it tend to be oh, one right, of, the, okay. of the older years. And then they'd, they'd be doing their own homework at the same time. It's just they were responsible for making sure that everybody wasn't talking and wasn't, wasn't mucking around, basically. Um, yeah, but it's exactly that. It's that kind of more regimented style and also some flexibility. So the way in which they'd work the timetable meant that during the summer because it's daylight for longer they'd rejig the lessons so we'd have lessons later in the evening and we'd do more sport during the day because it was right. using the choosing the daylight hours and then again in the winter they rejig it slightly again to make sure that you had the opportunities as far as possible so it's just a very different way of life really 
Yeah, of course, of course. But but one you ultimately enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, wouldn't change it for the world. And and I'm very conscious of that's a, a privileged upbringing that I had that that not everybody gets the opportunity to to enjoy. Um, it's not a pressure on me, but at the same time, I am conscious that that's not not normal. That's not what everybody's experienced. Of course. Do you do you think from that background then? Um, you know, because yeah, you know, going to boarding school for your parents would have cost a reasonable amount of money to, to send, send you away for, for that kind of private schooling. Um, did you find it hard to resonate with people that hadn't um, had that kind of upbringing early on in your career? And, and did you have to adapt as you kind of got into leadership roles where by pretty much the most part, probably 95% of the people that you would have led hadn't had that bringing? Um, I've never found it a problem. Um, and I'm hoping other people have never found it a problem as well, because it's easy to see from my side of life and think, I oh, know that's not an issue for anyone else. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, certainly, I mean, the minute you go to university, you're thrown back into the melting pot. Uh, it's much more more of a mix of life. I went to boarding school and went to university in London. Uh, and so it's very diverse, um, both international and, and local. So uh yeah i've just never found it as an issue i, I kind of I suppose should uh, give an acknowledgement to my parents that they, they gave me the advantage of those, of those experiences but at the same time kept me very grounded in terms of uh not getting above my station and not feeling as though i am um, something better than anyone else because that's certainly never been the case and certainly in terms of my leadership style which we might come on and talk about i'm very values based um, I'm very conscious that part of the thing that attracts me to local government and keeps me in local government is being able to make a difference to people's lives. That was one of, ultimately one of my frustrations why I left being at the bar was because at the bar you can have an impact on people's lives, but it's a bit late. It's, it's at the court door after things have gone wrong and you're trying to put them back together. Whereas in local government, you're much more upstream and also you're supporting whole communities, not just one individual in one, one single case. But it's the yes. same principles. <clears throat> sure. So, so on that line, do you feel like you're responsible for not only the staff that work for you, but the the population that fall within your joint councils? Absolutely. Yeah. So from my perspective, that that responsibility absolutely extends to every resident and, and every business um, and, and to some extent to every visitor as well into our patch that that they're they're citizens. They're ultimately paying for all of our wages our responsibility is to make sure that we're providing the best possible service that we can to all of them and that is yeah absolutely it's a personal responsibility as i feel as chief executive towards all of our our residents our citizens our tenants our customers pick a word in that regard but but yeah. particularly within that to the most vulnerable um, lots of people are able to look after themselves most people's contact with councils is relatively small um, and, and they don't necessarily want to have any contact with their council either as long as the bin gets collected um, as long as the street lights come on as long as the roads are clean they're pretty much happy with things um, but others are not so fortunate in life and, and particularly at the moment coming out of the, the COVID situation I'm expecting to find many more people who are in need and that's particularly where I think that the responsibility is on us as a councillor, me as chief executive and the politicians, of course, as well, to be providing that safety net and support and leg up to the most vulnerable in our society. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, interesting journey then. So then, so then from boarding school to uni, where you done law and yep. uni. Yep. Um, so so boarding school was from, was that secondary school age or primary school age all the way up to A-levels? Secondary school. So 13. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 13 so GCC's A-levels. Yeah, A-levels. Okay, cool. Um, 
Interesting. And so, so then you went, um, so you've done your law degree and then worked as a barrister. How long, how long did you work as a barrister for? Uh, probably about a couple of years in total, um, including the pupillage period. So you have to do the first nine months um, of pupillage, which is essentially following somebody around. Um, in the first period of time, you you can't do any cases. You're literally just bag carrying and learning. You're just sh and then shadowing, then basically. Learning the trade. Yeah, exactly. Just learning the trade. You, you'll be doing some drafting behind the scenes. So uh, your, your pupil master will get you doing things on, on their behalf. Um, but you're not stood up in court. You're not advocating. You're not on your own. And then for the second half of that, then you're allowed out on your own into the wider world. And, and we'll be doing some of that work. So I was about, about a couple of years because, as I said before, we got married relatively young um, and my wife was very clear we were not going to I was 24 um, and and uh, my wife was very clear that as far as she was concerned we were not going to have a family in London we were going to go back to where her family comes from which is Norfolk so that's what drew me to East Anglia in the first place makes sense makes sense wife always wins the real boss eh absolutely yeah absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, so so talk to me so the first time like you had to stand up in court and speak. Was that like a scary moment? Uh, it was a really scary moment, yeah. Um, yeah. Because as much as you can be confident in you've done your preparation, you know what you want to say, you've got the sort of twin elements of you don't know what your, your opposite number is going to say, so the barrister on the other side. Um, and I think there's always a perception that you're enemies in some way. That's probably down to television and, and how that's portrayed. But you're not at all. You're all part of the same trade. You get old very well. But equally, you don't know how good they are. So you don't know what arguments they're going to put forward. And then I think the bigger fear factor for me was always the judge. Uh, always the, the person on the other side who clearly is going to know more than me because I've only just started doing it and not making a fool of yourself. And at the same time, recognizing you've got a responsibility to your clients. So I, I did a lot of family work um in the in the first phases and as well as little bits of crime but particularly the family work it was people's lives um usually they've gone through a family breakdown they're trying to sort out their contact arrangements with their children um it, you certainly feel a, a clear sense of responsibility to not not screw that up mm, i bet you never forget your first case no no <laughs> no absolutely no. not no 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 interesting interesting so 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 barrister um wanted to move out of London for, to, to raise family. So, so did you move out of London after you'd had your first child or, or um, before? No, later. Uh, later. So we moved out before. Yeah, so we moved out before and then had children later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we were I think I asked that, that question in the weirdest way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, we wanted, we knew that we wanted to start a family relatively young. Um, the idea being that we were still youngish parents when, when they started to get older. So my oldest is now 18, which is frightening. Um, and uh, so that was why we, we made the move at that stage. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you wanted to have kids young, and and that's kind of. So you got you got three children, right? Got three children. Yes, so I've got an eighteen-year-old, a fifteen-year-old, and a in next week a twelve-year-old. Boys, girls. Uh, mixture, boy in the middle, poor sod, um, uh, surrounded by two girls. Yeah. Well, I'm I've, I've got three girls, so I'm the poor sod that's surrounded by four <laughs> women in the house. Yeah. No, you uh, you win. Yeah. 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 Dog, 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 got the dog, had to call it Jackson because that was the only chance I had uh, of having any kind of man company in the house. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, interesting. Okay, cool. So, so then you went, so from there, that, that's when you then got the job at Norfolk Constabulary, was it then? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and at the time, and it sounds horrible, but it was just a job. It was any job. So it was a case of just trying to find something that was relevant to obviously the, the background and the, the education that I'd had uh, and the training. 
Um, but at the same time, it, it just happened to be Norfolk and Stadbury. It, it could have easily have been somebody else if it had been a different set of circumstances. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So when you know, so you're in a in a pretty high leadership role, you know, in 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 the local mm-hmm. authority space, you know, in terms of job title, the highest you can get. Obviously, there's bigger councils you could go to and so on. Um, but you know, was you a natural leader growing up? Was you a natural? Um, did because you don't you don't become a chief chief executive of any organisation by accident. You know, there's there's values that you need to have. There's ways that you need to hold yourself. Um, you know, was that something that that was always in you? Do you think? Um, I think it was a degree of it was always in there without me knowing. Um, but most of it is learned. It's learned behaviour and practice. So, uh, I mean, I, it sounds like an odd thing to say for a barrister. I used to hate public speaking. I really, really hate it and avoid it at all costs, uh, particularly as a, a child at school. The last thing would I would I certainly wouldn't be the one put my hand up and trying to answer questions. I'd let other people do that. Um, because I just had that fear of doing it um, but you like anything it's just you practice you practice and you practice and practice and you, you you force yourself to face your fears in that sense and after a while you become much more confident with it and more comfortable with it and it's the same with with management so I found myself in local government my second job effectively in local government as a, a head of service and I'd never had any management training at all and I was very fortunate that they, they sent me on some training, which was just part of routine. It wasn't specifically for more for me, but I was very conscious from that about understanding what I didn't know. Um, so people around me who'd done MBAs, who knew all these different models of management and leadership styles, and I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. Um, and it, you do need a degree of, I suppose, confidence to be able to say, yeah, but I do know which way is up. I do know how to, to have a conversation and a sensible discussion. And, and if I don't know something, I'll ask. Um, and and be able to learn that way and so I've always been inquisitive so it's always helped in terms of wanting to better myself wanting to improve myself but it was a long time before I actually had responsibility for managing people and even then I hadn't been taught how to do it it was something I just had to draw upon from a little bit of experience in sort of personal life Um, used to play rugby was part of teams who sort of man management and in that regard um, but largely it was drawing upon experience of other managers I'd had in the past, good good experiences, bad experiences. Do I want to be like that? Do I not want to be like that? What did I learn from the, that experience? What I wouldn't do again in that way? Mm, mm. So, so do you think part of being a leader is being really self-reflective and, and being um, accountable to yourself on, on, on kind of your 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 bad points really because your good points you can you can you know harvest and so on but but your bad points are the ones that you really need to tackle head on aren't they certainly for me i I mean that's what i do as leadership and there's not one way of doing it but for me it is absolutely that it's being acutely self-aware um and it's looking for that feedback and you have to actively seek it out seek it out and particularly the more senior you get people become even more shy about telling you things so it becomes harder in some respects you have to force people to say look i want to know I'm also brutally straightforward, uh, I suppose, with my staff in particular, in terms of saying, look, I am not the perfect chief executive. I won't ever be the perfect chief executive because there's no such thing. But what I will do is keep trying to get better at it. Um, and that's all I ask of you in all of your jobs as well, that you keep get, trying to get better at it. Um, and we do that through communication. We do that through learning, not, not basically bearing a grudge, as it were, but saying, okay, what went well there? What went better? Or what could have gone better, rather? Um, and trying to reinforce and remind ourselves about that next time around. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. 
I mean, for, for me, you know, you know, for my business, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I went from a position where I was just a senior sales guy into, into owning and running a business and, 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 you know, I'd never managed a team before. So it's, you know, interesting that, you know, you know, excusing naivety, but not, not and right now, but you know, until not long ago, I didn't even realize there was management methodologies or principles mm -hmm. or textbooks to saying you should handle this situation in this way and so on. Um, but at the same time, I don't even know if I'd want to learn leadership from a textbook. Um, no, no, definitely um, not. Yeah. And I'd agree with you in terms of, I was exactly the same. I didn't know that stuff existed. I, I knew I wanted to be a barrister. I knew I, I knew the route to becoming a barrister. I knew roughly speaking what a barrister did. And, and there's no management involved in that. You, you've got a clerk to look after your caseload. Your clerk case takes care of your finances. You might have an accountant if you're lucky enough in due course. But otherwise, there was no management skills or models or theories or any of that. I didn't, like you, I didn't know it existed even. Um, and even now, although I find that stuff interesting, I'm not one of these people who can pick up a book and absorb it and read it from cover to cover. Um, that would, I'd find that too frustrating. I'm, I'm interested in it in terms of, I want to delve into it and I'll challenge it. So I won't accept it necessarily as being, yeah, absolutely. That's the thing that resonates with me. And that's the style I'm going to be. Uh, for me, it's about picking and choosing. It's taking elements that you find from different sources. Um, and the real sort of, uh, not so much eye opener, but the thing that works much more effectively for me as a, time short and lazy person in that regard is things like YouTube um, so YouTube can give you snippets of these things in a much more effective way and then if I'm more interested then I'll go and buy the book and I might delve in a bit in a bit further detail yeah yeah it makes sense makes sense and I think that um, you know it's <laughs> leadership's about common sense ultimately you know it's about showing empathy it's about showing integrity it's about doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing but also having to make tough calls and um, and it might be the wrong thing for that person, but it's the right thing for the overarching vision or, or for the company or for whatever it might be. Right. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a lot of emotional intelligence and, 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 and how do you learn emotional intelligence from a book? Um, um, but at the same time, you know, the, you know, for example, here you go. Book that I'm reading at the minute, um, mm -hmm. Rob Iger or Bob Iger from um, the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. It's called Lessons in Creative Leadership. So here I am reading a book on. So so don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not I'm not anti um, anti these kind of books or these um, these kind of because I, I find them incredibly interesting. But what I am pleased with is that I didn't start there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, because if I started there, my style would probably have been molded by that rather than that molding my um, my style, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It does, yeah. I, I agree entirely. And, and, and I think the best leaders I've come across, they're all diverse. They've all had different backgrounds and they've all learned and evolved along the way. They've not, they've not started from the perspective of, I want to be a leader. I'd be worried about that kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> something slightly worried about it. Worrying yeah. there, it's almost, if, it's almost fake, isn't it? It's like, how yeah. can you, yeah. You know, it's almost like a facade that's put on and then because it's not genuine and real, then it's not then, you know, it's, it's, it's then perceived as, as not genuine and real. And then the credibility goes and, yeah. Um, and then the, the, the whole kind of losing the team 
happens very quickly because I've worked for organizations like that. And I've worked for people that have got promotions and very quickly failed and gone back to being a salesperson again. Um, and and because it, is, it is difficult. It really is difficult. I, so, I was certainly very fortunate, I think, which was the, the first lo local government that I worked in properly, which was um, Waveney District Council in Suffolk. Um, I didn't know it at the time when I took the job, but they were a, a basket case as an organisation. They were performing really poorly. Um, and during my time there, that became clear. And, and it meant that there was more opportunities. I think if I'd have gone in a, an organisation that was performing really, really well, I don't think I'd have been able to progress as far as I have. And I don't think I'd have learned as much. Yeah, I learned a lot more from the mistakes that the organisation and people within it were making at the time than I ever would from something that's a high flying. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I, you know, what, what does leadership mean to you then? I suppose for me, it's about being very human. Uh, as you said about common sense um, it doesn't mean it's easy doesn't mean it's straightforward but it, it is about leadership in that moment so sometimes that is about making relatively quick decisions on short amounts of evidence or short amounts of information um, or taking people's advice at face value and without the time to necessarily dig into it uh, to be able to investigate and of course as a lawyer that feels really uncomfortable or could feel really uncomfortable because I'm used to evidence and, and detail yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so that was one of the things I had to get more comfortable with was being able to recognize that sometimes it's more important to make a decision then and there than to cogitate over it for a week and then make what you might think is a better decision but she wasn't because the important thing was a decision was made in the moment um, but equally, it's that judgment as to when is that inappropriate, because it's easy to snap judge things um, and using instinct when actually something needs a bit more time. It needs a bit more consideration and it needs a bit more engagement. So for me, that balance, one of the biggest challenges, finding that balance between being chief executive, if you like, I'm in charge, I make the decisions, which isn't my style at all, versus very, very democratic as a management team. But it also can feel quite woolly, quite quite fluffy, if you like, and, and feel as though you're not actually getting anywhere. You're just engaging lots of people without necessarily reaching a decision. I think a lot of the time it's judging that balance as to depending on the issue, depending on the circumstances. But people have to feel engaged. They have to feel as though they own the things we're dealing with. Um, and if, if I'm telling them what to do all the time, they're not learning, but also they're not going to feel as though they own it. They're not going to be empowered. So I'm very much of the opinion that we should be working always towards an organization that feels though it knows the framework. It understands in broad terms where we're trying to get to. It understands the vision as it were. It understands our values and has the autonomy to make its own decisions and, and also the permission to make mistakes. So I've, right from I started this job I've said to our staff um, I want you to make mistakes not just I'll back you if you make a mistake I actively want you to make mistakes because if you're not we're not stretching ourselves we're not learning we're not doing the best we can for our communities and our residents but even now I can probably count on one hand when they've actually made mistakes because me telling them they're allowed to make mistakes and them feeling as though they're actually allowed to make mistakes is a much bigger journey and a bigger challenge to get them to that point where they genuinely feel confident enough to try stuff in the knowledge that trying stuff is how we learn. Yeah, makes sense. So, so you know, um, how do you approach difficult conversations then? Because, you know, you lead with common sense, you lead with empathy, you lead with, as, as you said, as a, you know, with your, with your human side. Um, how do you deal with or how do you make those difficult conversations? Um, I think what I've found in the past is that sometimes I've done them 
if you like, too well. And that sounds arrogant. I don't mean it that way. I mean too well as in they haven't worked. Because, again, probably drawing upon my background, I suppose, I can present something and have a conversation with them in a way that the person comes away feeling good about themselves. And you want them to do that. Whatever that difficult conversation is, you don't want them to feel as though they've just completely deflated them. You want them to come Beat away feeling positive. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's not my management or leadership style. Um, but, of course, if you do that too well, they miss the point. <laughs> they don't see the issue that you're actually raising they they come away feeling empowered which is great but actually they've not learned the lesson that you wanted to learn along the way so i've certainly made mistakes in that regard in trying to sugarcoat in a positive way for all the right reasons and things uh, because i lean in that direction i'm more empathetic rather than just do it i mean you, you won't hear me shout and scream around the office ever um i think the only time i ever have shouted is probably at the kids but that's about all they're the only ones who know how to push my buttons um so I lean on that side of the empathetic, which doesn't mean it's harder to do difficult decisions and harder to do difficult conversations. Actually, it's easier, but it, I do have to focus quite hard on making sure the persons really understand the point that whatever the issue is, we're trying to get through to them. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So, um, does does that change though from say colleagues to um, say counsellors to members of the public? Does that does that have to change depending on who you're you're talking with? Always, and and not just between those differentiations, but even within those categories, if you like. So my style with one member of staff will not be the same with another member of staff. Um, same my style with it's a councillor will be the same with another councillor. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's the biggest challenge is doing those in circumstances where you don't know the person. Um, walking into a room, which I've done several times with community groups, where you've you're not talking on a one-to-one -one basis, you're talking on mass. Um, and you don't know any of them, or you might know a few of them, but not not the sort of general uh, view. That's the hardest skill because it's trying to find a way of getting through to those people in, in a way that they all can appreciate or they can all, because we all learn differently. We've all got different learning styles. We've all got diff different communication styles. Um, and we have a room where people want to rant. They, they need to get that out of the system. They want to have a go. Fine, let them have a go. Um, I certainly remember one in particular where the people I was talking to were saying, it's all about them. And I had to try and un get under the skin of who we meant by them. And as I started to unpick it, you know, them, the council. And I, I wasn't chief exec at the time, but I was in a, a director role. And I said, well, do you mean me? No. Well, do you mean my boss? No. Well, who do you mean then? Because who do you think this thing is that is the council? Because I can guarantee you now all my staff want to do a fantastic job for you day in day out none of them are working against you they work in the public sector because it aligns with their values um, they could all be earning probably much more money in the private sector but they've chosen to work in the public sector because it's part of who they are it's in their dna in the most part um, so they're all trying to do the right thing and that trying to get that across to the people is is a real challenge because there is a there's one of the difficulties with the with the councils in particular and local government is we don't tend to have a brand we're seen as that bureaucratic faceless thing. Uh, and certainly where I work, uh, there are three tiers of local government. So you've got the parish council or the town council, um, us as the district council, and then the county council. So it's, it's really confusing for the public as to well, which bit are you? Um, whereas often I talk about the NHS and the police. Well, NHS is a vast, complicated, enormous thing. And yet everybody knows what they do. We're a much more local, purely exist to serve your local purposes and nobody knows what we do apart from collect the bins yeah collect the bins and make sure oh, oh. potholes out there 
Exactly. So part of it, yeah. So part of our challenge is really getting through to our residents about what we're here for and our values, and and that's leadership to my mind. That's part and parcel of what we're there for. Because if we can build those bridges and build that relationship with our communities, then we can be more effective in terms of what we can do for them, but particularly with them, not so much for them. Um, so that's a real emphasis for me is around our value basis and and building a building a bit of a brand and in that wider sense. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so you, you, you've mentioned your va- values a lot, right? And mm-hmm. and yeah, values for me are I just I just find it I, I find it quite difficult to really kind of understand. You know, I, I understand from a from a perspective of you know what my true values are, and that's integrity and empathy and and so on and so forth. But but to really nail down that and say why, um, um, it, I think it's something that perhaps takes time to 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 get to um so so first of all what are your values and why are they your values yeah i think you're right that i've been through a journey with this in terms of is it just motherhood apple pie and just nonsense and management mumbo jumbo if you like or is it something that's real and i think the the turning point for me was the emphasis on and it was a sales point as really that that people buy stuff because of why you do it rather than necessarily what you do so um, take a bad example we've all got choice around what cars we buy we don't buy logically we buy based upon a whole variety of things it might be what's the flashiest it might be what's the fastest it might be to some degree what we can afford but oftentimes we're build, we're buying into a, again buying into a brand buying into a value basis of i want to be that type of person i want to be that type of person that drives that type of car or owns that kind of phone or whatever it is yeah um and for me, that's what it is for what the organization drive? as well. It's yeah, so, so a mixture. So I've got a, a hyper-efficient, if you like, boring Ford car, um, which is just about getting me to the office and back. And I'm firmly of the view of following lockdown that I've seen if I can get rid of it because I don't think I need to go into the office as much anymore. Yeah. Um, and then my wife drives the Jag, which is a completely different end of the spectrum. <laughs> uh, One extreme to the other. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. There you go. So um, go on, sorry for interrupting. So, no, no, you're fine. It's a, it's a good point. Um, so for me, in terms of the organisational values, it's it's trying to focus away from, or build on rather, rather than we're the public sector, we work in the public sector and um, aren't we great, as it were, because we work in the public sector. No, 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 that's not the issue. It's why. What is it really intrinsically that makes us who we are? What is it that we're, tr- what is it we're trying to achieve? Why do we work in that way? Um, and for me, that always comes back to communities. That always comes back to supporting the most vulnerable and communities. Um, and yes, they can add to that. You can be in terms of our approach around customers. Yes, around empathy and, and support and all those other things. But quite often it comes down to that impact we're trying to have on our place and on our communities and on our residents, which isn't necessarily my values. So when I talk about values, I don't mean my personal values. I mean the organizational values, because I don't think you can get to a situation whereby I tell you as my employee that your values should align to the councils. No, you've got your own. You've all got your own value basis um, that changes over time as well. It evolves over time. Certainly mine's massively changed since I had kids. Um, that has a fundamental effect on your life. Um, and and, and I, no doubt other things will at different points in time as well. I learned the most, I suppose, when I did a coaching course. And that really opened my eyes to uh, emotional intelligence 
connecting active listening and trying to find ways of building rapport which is about trying to understand the person and, and as they get under their skin and then you start talking about understanding their values as well sure so when you say a coaching program was that like a two-day getaway or was that like a mentor type program it, it was a i think it was a ilm thing um so it was a specific program with a view to over a course of five days spread out over about six months um developing me as a coach um the idea being that you can do one-to-one -one coaching but actually where i've found it most useful is is actually in just general general leaderships day to day so it's not so much the sitting down and coaching that person in front of me albeit I can do that it's more the how do you bring the coaching skill set to the wider organization yeah sure sure makes sense so has that helped you um, develop other leaders because I think that's one key thing that leaders need to show is that they can that they can build other leaders um, I think it, it's part of what's helped with that. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the one of the biggest things I've struggled with, particularly as, as chief executive, because you want to build a strong team around you. Um, but you also want, I want people who can outgrow us, recognize that actually I haven't got the role for you anymore. You're, you're better than what I can offer you. What you need to now do is go off elsewhere and, and grow further. And if I'm lucky, you might come back again at a later date. Um, but I'm not going to hold it against you. I, I want you to to grow. So Certainly in local government, there was in the in the past, there was a tradition of you would go into local government at the YTS stage and you'd stay your whole career and you would never leave. And you can see why that would happen, because actually local government opens up huge opportunities because you can jump around, you can move departments, you can there's all, there's local government everywhere. So you haven't necessarily got to stay in the same part of the country even. Um, but there was a degree of stagedness, if you like, or danger of that by people staying put uh, almost for too long whereas I'm very much from the perspective I'd rather get the best of you and really have the best of you for two years and at that end of that two years you leave and I've trained you and I've nurtured you and I've developed you and that's annoying because <laughs> you want to keep that person for longer but you recognize that that's the best thing for them, yeah. thing for them. and, in, you've and had that. so there's new bloods that brings other people into the organization yeah because you've had that recently haven't you where one of your senior leadership team um, moved over as the chief executive to a London borough yeah Brentwood yeah yeah, um, yeah. in Essex okay yeah Brentwood. last right. December yeah last yeah. December he moved across and and exactly that he'd been with us for I think nearly two years on the dot um and and great for him and, and yeah. yeah and actually I take personal pride in that that yeah I was gonna I'm say you're to proud play of that a small part absolutely hugely proud of that and, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be arrogant enough to say well you got that job because of me because that won't be the case at all it will be a build up of a whole load of things but at the same time yeah I'm very proud of the fact that somebody who immediately from us went on to to become chief exec somewhere else that's that's great yeah of course so so um your chief exec role that you're in now that was your first chief executive role wasn't it yeah how did that's you right. feel when you, how did you feel when you got there it was a weird one because um I'd been wanting to become a chief is it quite a long time um and i'd put my hat in the ring to for several jobs in fact actually i'd applied for this role that i now have when it had been previously advertised um about five years previously maybe a bit less maybe about three years previously um and uh, i wasn't ready at the time and i probably didn't know that but i do know with hindsight that i definitely wasn't ready at the time and and it does it's daunting. I think the biggest daunting thing was not so much the step up from being a director to chief exec because I had enough time to think about that and, and really think about how I was going to make my mark, what kind of chief exec I wanted to be. And I'd learned along the way that there's no one, one type of chief exec. So certainly in the past, I'd worked for a chief executive who was great, 
but he was the wrong chief executive for that organization at that point in time. So he had a really collegiate approach. It was the council I mentioned earlier, um, but that council was in such a mess that wasn't what it needed. It needed a different approach at that point in time. And that was that like me less I just assumed as a naive. Yeah, it just needed, a, well, it needed more of a stick at the time and, and, more oh, force right, okay. and, and shorter, shorter time periods. It needed to take a much more definitive, we're going to change this. It's going to be a short, sharp shock to the organization rather than a more of an arm around the shoulder and, and, and a slower burn. Um, there wasn't the time for that and that wasn't the right style for the organization. It needed shaken up more. And that taught me because as a, a sort of a junior local government officer, I just assumed that when well, you become a chief exec and as kind of all chief execs are this wonderful beasts that know all the answers and they're all the same and they could all be chief execs anywhere. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's the right leader in the right place at the right time. So I was very conscious of thinking about that for, for my organizations now as to how that should work. So, um, so, you know, that was your, your first chief executive role and, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd kind of gone through a place where you know, the timing was right. Basically you'd gone from previously, you know, applying for more than one. Uh, yeah. For probably about five, I suppose in the end. Um, and I had a really good piece of advice from somebody along the way, which was, um, not to be disheartened because up until that point, I'd been lucky enough that most of the time I'd apply for a job, I'd be the best candidate and I'd get the job. And so I wasn't used to being uh, rejected um, in that way. And so it did come as quite a uh, demotivating thing. I did start thinking to myself, well, am I right to be a chief executive? Is it, is it me? Am I doing things wrong? And somebody gave me some fantastic advice, which was simply to say, no, look, from everything we're seeing, and this was somebody on the interview panel, you absolutely need to keep, keep applying. And when it's the right time, when it's the right place, you'll be, you'll get the job, but you can't determine who you're up against in that moment, what the other person is, is going to say, the, the people that you're competing with. Um, and it comes down to quite fine margins. Um, and so, yeah, just keep, keep at it essentially. So I did. Yeah, no, good for you. Good for you. So was, was there like, uh, you know, like an influential person um, in your life, either professionally or personally that, either harvested you um, or, or mentored you or someone that, that was just massively inspiring for you? Um, I don't think there was a single person. Uh, I mean, of the sort of, I was picking somebody out, it's my, my most recent boss, so the chief executive of, of East Suffolk as it now is, um, just because I've worked with him for such a period of time and, and through that, that difficult time for that organization. And so his influence, I learned a huge amount from him. Um, and still do because obviously he's part of the same Suffolk network so we, we still meet each other um, and so we still have the opportunity in that regard. Um, beyond that, no, I don't think there was a sort of inspirational single figure or sort of hero type worship type thing, no. Um, I think it was more elements of lots of different people that I've that picked up along the way, both positive and negative. And again, a bit, bit like anything, I probably learned more from the people I don't want to be like than I have from the people that I do want to be like. Um, and, and it's just distilling that. And, and again, having the, having the bravery to hold the mirror up to yourself and saying, am I slipping? Am I still being true to myself? Am I displaying some of those characteristics that I really didn't like myself? Uh, am I in danger of, of, of bleeding into that type of person? Or am I being true to myself and being able to, to hold firm and, and continue to grow and learn? Sure. You're very self-reflective. Do, do, do you have set time to do that? Or do, do you do it once every month three months six months a year um or is it just that ongoing um you know coming off uh, you're being an ass or coming off you're doing really well 
Um, I suppose the advantage of being chief exec is that loads of people do it for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and usually the people who aren't backwards and coming forward as well. So, and, and there's a balance there because, of course, the people who will speak the loudest are the ones who are usually making negative points. Um, not always, but they will be, they will be prepared to do that. So uh, the minute I stand up and expose myself in front of councillors and staff in terms of saying, right, I'm going to do a presentation, it's that time of the year, chief exec's on tour, um, then inevitably that that gives you feedback, which is which is fantastic. That's what I thrive off um, and, and really need. I still struggle to get it and get it in a timely way. I think that's the, the even more key aspect because there's no point me self-reflecting over the last 12 months and thinking, oh, I really shouldn't have done that eight months ago. It's too late. Um, so for me, it's about trying to get that reflection in the moment. Uh, then my kids keep me very grounded as well. I mean, they still haven't got a clue what it is I do for a living and, and are very clear at pointing that out and looking incredulous as it were and it's best to try and explain it they still don't understand well, so well, that keeps what you very do you do on yeah well i was gonna say well, well you know how would you describe your day-to-day -day role because you know i i i don't think i could describe my day to i don't know how i would describe my day-to-day -day role i think the the default description is probably the most unhelpful which is speaking to lots of people in lots of meetings dealing with lots of emails but that doesn't really tell you anything it doesn't describe what it is you and, and i can go to the other end of the spectrum and start talking sort of grand words about trying to change this area and we're trying to have an impact and trying to affect people's lives and of course that's too broad as well that doesn't mean anything and then the, the default is the one in the middle which is to describe the services we deliver as an organization um, but to me that that absolutely misses the point the fact we do building control well so what I mean, that's important i'm not diminishing building control officers but at the same time that really isn't the essence of what we're trying to achieve so it, it's one of those things that i think always requires a, a longer conversation and also to explain the politics because i uh, the closest i can give particularly for those in the private sector is to say well you know that board you've got if, if that's the structure you've got you've probably got let's say six eight people on your board i've got 66 so that's the, the, way, the way I try and explain. Now, that's not true either. That's an exaggeration. But that's the way I try and explain the politics. The fact that there are effectively 66 stakeholders as councillors who are all very different people. And again, the, the management of them is just as important as the management of the staff and the leadership of them. And that's a shared relationship because, again, you're in charge of your own business. You're in charge. There's no one else. I'm chief executive of two councils, but I'm not the only one in charge. I've got two leaders for a start so it's a very different dynamic different relationship between the chief executive and the political leadership of the organization as well yeah sure sure what about um politics in not the sense of politics but just kind of red tape politics um and and you know whether that slows innovation whether that causes problems to um be be quick and responsive to to, to issues or whatever it might be you know, uh, is there anything you change about the sector that you work within? Um, yeah, there are certainly things where the challenge. But you're not, exactly not going to go on record with them. No, no, no. I would, no, I would um, I, the, the COVID. It's interesting with COVID nineteen and our response to that has been a private example where we've just had to respond. We've done stuff, and, and uh, I've done stuff, and then asked for forgiveness, if you like, afterwards from from the um, politicians because there hasn't been the time to take it through the normal processes. Um, but I think it's horses for courses. It depends on what it is. Where I would like to see 
all politicians, not just mine, is much more focused on the big picture, much more focused on the legacy they want to leave for their places. What's the thing that they want to be able to point to their grandchildren and say, look, I achieved that. That's the difference I made as the local politician in this place. Whereas often that's not necessarily the reason they come into politics. More often than not, people are coming into politics because of planning and they want to have an impact on planning decisions, um, which is much more granular in many respects. Um, and they can't help themselves and I don't, don't blame them for that, but they, they want to get involved in detail. And so they'll get involved in how many parking meters have you got over there and uh, who's done what as it were. And, and that's fine, but that's the bit where the line is for me, which is let me worry about that stuff. Don't get involved in that stuff as a, as a politician, be aware of it and, and trust me, have trust in me that I'll tell you if you need to know, as it were. But really what I want you focused on is what do you want to achieve with the fact that we own 7,000 council houses? What's the impact you want to have with that? And, and what's the right number of council houses? Do you believe in social housing in a way that means that you want us to double the number of council houses? Um, or do you want us to drive forward on a different agenda around the economy and the high street? So there's much bigger things. And, and so the challenge on that front is is working with the politicians to to reach consensus because they well, they all come from different backgrounds, not just politically. So they fall into different political parties, of course they do. But even within one political party, it doesn't mean they will agree with each other. Quite often they don't agree with each other. So it's trying to build a picture of what is it you want to achieve for your places and getting them to focus on those places and those communities and then build some consensus. And then we know we want to, where we need to go to, as it were. Yeah, sure. Let's change the uh, let's change the questioning away from work for a minute. Um, you know, talk to me about your family because you know you mentioned before that you know, your wife didn't necessarily want you to be a barrister because of the long hours, because of the um, you know the, the 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 kind of intrusive nature in in your personal life that 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 role holds. You're now in a role that is probably exactly the same as that. You know, long hours um you 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 go to work with work on your mind you come home with work on your mind no doubt um yeah so so how's that and uh, kind of developed and and uh, over, over your career yeah naive wasn't i um <laughs> um it was interesting it was a joint decision so there wasn't so much my wife in that regard um because she also trained as a barrister so she knew where she was coming from as it were in that regard but it was more what we wanted from family life um uh, and and where we wanted that balance between work life and, and and family life and and i get it wrong absolutely and i think everybody gets it wrong in that regard um and again lockdown has been a, a real eye-opener in some respects but not necessarily better um so i no longer have a commute that's fantastic um i started from an early point of the lockdown of faking my commute so taking the dog out first thing just to have that break between being at home and at work which of course you, you haven't got but you've got that sort of artificial divide um, and even now I know I'm getting it wrong because what we've seen certainly as an organization is old habits starting to bleed into home working environment so tomorrow for example we've got a meeting of all the chief executives in Suffolk it's starting at 8am it never would have started at 8am previously it would have started at nine o'clock but of course it can start at eight now because nobody's commuting, so it is. And I think that's where we're getting it wrong because we need to protect ourselves and protect our time to think. That's the main thing. Uh, so I used to do the commute. It's not just a break between work and home. It's also the sort of decompression chamber from being at work and, and coming home again. But it's also a critical time to think and catch up on what else is going on in the world. 
Um, it seems a ridiculous thing, but I'm, I'm much less aware of the news now than I was when I was going into work, because that was the time when I would catch up with what was going on with the world, the hour on the way there and the hour on the way back. Um, whereas now I'm just straight into work and then straight out of work. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult blend. And, and you change over time in terms of what your family needs and how old the children are and, and what, their, what their balance and support and the kind of hobbies that they have and therefore how that takes up time on, on your space, as it were. AKA dad's taxi service. Yeah, to some degree. I have to say, it was hugely liberating once um, my eldest became 17 and drives her own car. That really helpful. Um, not least because she could take the other two to school. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, awesome. Awesome. So, um, you know, you, you, you still work long hours though as part of your role, um, no doubt. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what, what, what do you do to un, un, unwind and relax and, and, um, and be Arthur for Arthur's mm-hmm. sake, not Arthur for being the chief executive of the well, council? Yeah, I suppose I've, I've always found it relatively easy to just to stop. Uh, and so uh, and that's luck that's nothing i've done that's no special technique that's, that's nothing in that so is it, is it taking just, you time to get to that point though no no that, that, yeah throughout even in in other roles in the past i've always found it very easy to flick the switch and simply say no i'm now in home mode or now i'm in work mode i don't i don't find that difficulty switching off having said that i suspect if you were asked my wife the same question she'd say the complete opposite which is she would say i never switch off um, and there is a bit of truth in that as well. So one of my ways of, of being able to manage that balance is um, I only have a work phone. I don't have a, a home mobile. I just have a work mobile. And that's a dangerous thing because it means that I'm always in connection with the emails. But it also en- enables me to manage my time so I can see quite easily, okay, that stuff's happening. I don't need to be involved in that. I can I can step outside of that. Others are dealing with those things. Um, it's five o'clock on a Friday. I don't need to be dealing with those things. And I've always had, I think, quite a mature approach, which is it doesn't matter how much work you've got to get done today. If I finish it at midnight, it's not going to make any difference to anyone else's life. So if I pick it up tomorrow morning, it's just the same. So let's leave it till tomorrow morning. Um, occasionally, occasionally that's not the case. Occasionally, you need to be in, into something immediately, but most of the time, stuff can wait. And and the thing I try and nurture with all the staff, and particularly the senior leaders within the within the management team, is you are more in control of your own time than you think you are. There's very little in your day as a senior leader, and particularly as chief executive. If I don't want to do something, I don't do it. If I do want to do something, I do do it. And there's very little that, f- that I have to go to. So if there's a full council meeting, yes, I have to be there. I mean, even then I could probably make an argument for not being there, but my view is I have to be there. But most of the time, everything else in my diary is at my gift. And I think that's also true of the rest of us as well. And we don't realise it. We get stuck in the rhythm of the PA has put that in my diary or somebody else has asked for a meeting or, and you can very easily lose control of those things. But if you're in control of that, that also means you can control the home stuff quite easily as well. Mm. So, so do you have a point where you say, right, enough's enough. This is the time I stop. Uh, not as a sort of a point in the evening or anything like that. No, no, I don't have a sort of routine. So I will finish at a different time every day, um, just depending upon what I'm doing, whether I feel still in the mood and whether or not it's critically important or whether it can wait. Um, yeah. and that, do you work when you get home from work? Uh, no, not normally. And that again, the home working environment has become has become very different. So I won't. Um, we work from Surface Pros, so I wouldn't switch on the Surface Pro um, when I get home from work if I'd been going into the office. No, um, I'd work on the phone 
if there were emails to respond to or if I needed to look at things or felt I wanted to look at things but I wouldn't be opening up and doing sort of major work from home so I, I've got colleagues um, one of my directors who on a Sunday afternoon because it suits her lifestyle her husband goes away to work on a Sunday because um, he works away during the week and so I will receive a a barrage if you like of emails from her on a Sunday afternoon because she chooses to work at that point in time and I won't criticize her for that because that's what works for her um, I don't so the weekend I, I don't do that um, others feel the need to or want to and that's fine I'm not going to not have a problem and the approach we adopted as a council a long time ago now is very agile so I don't really care how many hours you work what I care about is what you produce during that work, the, out, the outcomes, absolutely. Um, we've not quite been brave enough yet, although I have scared a few people occasionally, of saying maybe we should do away with annual leave. Because if we were true to what I just described, you wouldn't have a, a preset amount of annual leave that you could qualify for each year and then use up. You would simply say, well, if I've got no time to do it because I've got work to do, then I can't take annual leave. If I've got all these things done and I feel able to take on your leave, I can take on your leave. And if you're getting your work done, if you're producing your outcomes and you're hyper efficient and that means you get more annual leave that year, should I really care about it? And do you, do you think that would work? But as I say, we haven't been brave enough. Yeah. Well, do you think that would work on low level staff? Uh, and, I, and I don't mean that, in a, like, but, but people that are no, right. in a senior leadership role. I think it's not so much the senior leadership versus, versus other roles, although there is a bit of that. You're absolutely right. I think it's more a case of, um, the role itself so what I just described doesn't work if your job is to answer the phone calls as a customer services assistant because I need you to work from certain time of the morning to a certain time of the evening and be available accordingly because those are our opening hours so yeah you're absolutely right it won't work for the whole organization and that's the nature of local government as well we're, we're so diverse in terms of the different functions it does mean that one of the challenges is balancing what's fair because often what people mean by fair is they mean the same. So they would want to be treated exactly the same way in one department to another department. Whereas my view is no, that, that isn't fair because you're not doing the same role. Um, and we've, we've taken that approach at Christmas, for example. So we stay open at Christmas now, we used to close. Um, my view is that Christmas can be a horrible time for uh, residents, for, for normal human beings. People break, lives break down at Christmas. Yes, it can be wonderful, but it can also be miserable. And therefore the idea that we as an organization that's supposed to be there to support the most vulnerable are closed at one of those pinnacle times seems ridiculous. So we stay open, but, um, but we're then flexible in the sense of saying to, for example, our elections teams, normally last year being the exception to the rule we don't have elections in december um and so it makes no sense that i'm forcing you to come to the office and do work when you this is the least busy time of your year take leave take time off you don't need to be in but if you work in homelessness yeah you need to be in because we're likely to get more demand and, and some might argue that's not fair i would argue no that's reflective of the fact that at the end of the day we've got a job to do and we rightly should be held accountable to our customers, to our residents, um, not just to ourselves. And so we need to be keeping that at the forefront of our mind all the time. Sure, sure, sure. So um, hobbies and, and interesting things like that, you know, so you, you mentioned you played rugby before. Are you into any other sports? Have you got, have you got like a love for anything? Uh, rugby and golf, I suppose, are the two. And, and neither of them ever get get me out doing them anymore <laughs> so they're both they've fallen by the wayside through uh, through family life so i'm kind of hopeful that they'll come back around again but probably the golf rather than the rugby um but those are the two the two main ones uh, that have that have occupied my time particularly when i was younger um and then and then following through uh, more often than not because again because of the long hours that you talked about 
actually I'm quite happy just spending time at home with the kids. I don't, I don't need to have a, and with, and with my wife as well, rather than having a hobby as such, um, just doing things with them is, is fine. That's become more difficult just because the older they get, they don't want to spend time with their dad. They want to be doing their own thing or they want to be plugged into the, the Xbox. So um, yeah, that becomes a different challenge. Of course, of course, of course. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, something has to give, right? Um, you can't, so, so for me, like, you know, my mates, the majority have moved out of their family home in the last year or so. Um, the majority still go down the pub, well, when it was open most Fridays or at least at some point at the weekend. Yeah. Um, and I think they struggle to understand that I, you know, why I maybe only do that once every couple of months, you know, it's not even once a month anymore. And it's because something has to give, you know, you, you can't do it all. You cannot be senior within your, your, or you can't have a demanding job, regardless of whether it's a senior position or not. Um, you can't have such a demanding job and have a family and socialize like you used to. It's just, there's not enough time, but there's also not enough mental capacity to do it. Um, yeah. And, and, it, and it's also very unfair on my children. Um, Cause I'm, you know, I'm young, but I've got three children, right? So mm. Um, um, you know, if I go to the pub and get pissed on a Friday night, it's not fair to them on the Saturday that I'm then not at home Monday to Friday, really, again, out of COVID time, really mm. before you know, I'm gone around when they wake up and back around when they go to bed. If mm. I'm then hung over all down on a Saturday, when do they see their dad? Um, yeah. and, and, um, I think people really struggle, especially I think people at perhaps a younger age struggle, struggle with that, that don't have children. Um, and, and that, you know, I'm notoriously late all the time, but it's, I can blame the kids now because I got them. But, um, but, um, you couldn't before. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't before. But, but it is, it is demanding and, and, and life is demanding when you're in. Uh, in, in yeah, you, have to, you have to prioritise. Yeah, you have to prioritise and, and you make decisions as to what, what you think is best. And, you, and again, a bit like work, you'll get it wrong, but it doesn't matter because it's, as long as you your decision and you own it, it's, it's fine because you're right. You can't, you can't do anything. That's why I don't, don't play much golf at all is because I can't justify the, the four hours um, in terms of family time because if I'm taking a day off work, then that's a day's annual leave um, that my priority is to spend with the family not to spend on the golf course on my own or yeah okay not on my own but but not with them as it were particularly that length length of time so yeah it's it's trying to it's trying to balance all everything up in our lives which i suppose we're all trying to do it throughout our lives at different points so difficult isn't it so so difficult um just i want to cover covid um just just briefly before Mm -hmm. you know i kind of get on to to the last question um yeah how what what impact has COVID had on kind of your day to day role, um, but but also what impact has it has on had on the organisation in terms of transformation and and becoming um, almost almost the opposite of what public sector um, organisations seen as, and that's you know very slow, you're not very reactive, and 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 you've you've had to become the complete opposite. You've had to be act at pace make decisions quickly um implement technologies quickly perhaps without the huge and in some cases unneeded extensive due diligence that that typically goes on so so covid as a whole day-to-day role and transformation wise what's it what's it mean 
Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, COVID is tragic. And then just to say that at the outset, that the, the death toll and the impact on society, nobody would wish that at all. Um, and um, But at the same time, you're absolutely right. It has provided a huge amount of opportunity. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm struck, um, I think it was Disney Plus who launched in March and are already talking about the fact that from their business perspective, they're, they're at the year seven level that they would hope to have reached in in a matter of three months um and of course that's luck they, they didn't know covid was gonna come along i hope they didn't um and so they were very fortunate in terms of their timing but it just shows you that you can be in the right place at the right time and, and need to respond and, and i suppose just to sort of slightly disagree with what you said earlier local government and the public sector generally has always been fantastic in a crisis so our ability to mobilize when there's an emergency it's always just happened um, it doesn't just happen by accident it happens because of a lot of rehearsal and a lot of planning that goes into it um but it we've always been good at that what we've what we've seen with this in particular is though it's not a normal emergency um so a normal emergency we might get flooding it's there the waters subside we support those families but broadly speaking the world goes back to normal if you like um, and you might have some longer term flooding programs to try and prevent it from happening next time but essentially you go back to how you're doing things before this isn't that at all um, and, and particularly in emergency planning terms you normally go from emergency response and then there's quite a clear distinction line where you move from the emergency response into your recovery phase again we haven't got that with this this is going to be back and forth from emergency to recovery throughout and it's going to keep bouncing around i think um, as we go through over time and it's just going to last a lot longer inevitably last a lot longer and isn't something we've been able to plan for because it's a it is that partnership between local government and central government so the the whole localized track and trace that's now come in um nobody ever planned for that i don't think certainly if they had we hadn't done that at a local level we're having to reinvent something or invent something rather um, but we're not inventing it just for the next two weeks we're inventing something that's going to be with us bluntly until we've got a vaccine so let's say 18 months potentially if not a lot longer um, so it's very it's all very new and, and as a result you're absolutely right um, what i can see and what not just me but what my staff are saying to me is please can we hang on to the dynamic culture that has had to come out of that um, because you're right for all the right reasons in the past we might have spent months doing due diligence on a piece of software working out whether it's the right thing to do we do that because ultimately it's public money you're held to account for it if you get it wrong and it comes back to my point about being prepared and brave enough to make mistakes um, but it also demonstrates that you can just do stuff, make it work, and it's fine. Um, and so, yeah, what we are now looking at as an organisation is where are those opportunities? Um, so you'll, you'll be familiar, but for other people's benefit, we, we moved offices two and a half years ago. Um, and the reason we moved offices is because of working for two organisations. We had two headquarters buildings. It made no sense at all. Um, so the council, before I joined, the both councils made the decision to say, right, we're going to move out of our two headquarters buildings. That's totally inefficient. And we're going to move into a single headquarters. But because of the politics and because of some other reasons, they couldn't decide where they were going to put it. And so ultimately, we've ended up sharing offices with the county council. So we lease a floor of the county council's building, but it's outside of our two districts. So I think, I think other than one other council, but I think we're the only districts in the country that are actually based outside of their districts, which is a, a challenge for us when you're trying to deal with, with emergencies. Not, not on the ground, it's not a challenge in that sense, but psychologically feeling part of the community. It's a, it's a mini barrier. Um, but what that meant was 
more significantly and the reason why we did all of that was because we adopted much more agile processes then so the way in which we work in the IT that support that we've got behind us means that having to work from home so the offices are closed my intention is to keep them closed uh, at this point in time because they don't need to reopen and even if they were to reopen with the with the amount of social distancing type provisions we put in place they'd probably only be able to house probably a quarter of the actual capacity um, but everybody who has a home-based type activity, that kind of work, clearly bin men don't work from home, but other type of jobs, they are functioning just as effectively, if not more effectively than they did before. And they're dealing with all the other nonsense, and not nonsense, but challenges that have come with, with COVID. So they're having to deal with the fact that until recently, the kids are at home and they've suddenly become teachers as well as, um, yeah, as well as parents and as well as employees and they're looking after their older uh, relatives and I suspect some of them have gone through family breakdowns as well as a result of all of this and so despite all of that we're still delivering the services in a productive way and so my glass half full approach would say well if you took away all of those things from the COVID perspective just think how much more productive we could be if you didn't have all that other stuff going on at the same time think what we could really achieve then um, and equally I don't want to miss the opportunity because if we go back into the offices, we're not, but if we went back in the offices tomorrow, I know what, I know what human behavior is like. We'd, we'd slip back into old habits fairly quickly. Um, and so we would miss the window of opportunity to say, actually, we can change this. So we're now looking at, well, what is it to have an office? What do we mean by an office? What, why do we need a headquarters? What, 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 does an office, what does a council need that building for? It's not, it's not so you've got some columns and, and, and a sign of prestige. Surely it's not that. I mean, ours wasn't that anyway, but it's not that kind of thing. So what is it for? And, and the conclusions we're beginning to reach is, well, I don't need an office for a meeting because I can do that from home. I don't need an office for uh to work on my emails and things like that the desk as it were i can do that from home what what can't we do from home and when i say from home actually i mean anywhere so what we don't want to develop is a bunch of home workers what we want to develop is a, is a bunch of people who can work wherever they need to whenever they need to but if we need office space then it's to me it's more it's collaboration space it's creative space it's the kind of stuff that you can't quite do as effectively yeah you can bring up a whiteboard on a on a team teams page but it's not the same and so for us it's a case of saying okay how many of those spaces do we need and, and who is it we need to be collaborating with so logically where would you put that because that's not just internal collaboration that's with other partners as well and so we're starting to tease out all of those kind of thoughts and and that also links into what more could do we want to do in terms of technology um, and let's not think too far ahead because i mean certainly some of my colleagues were saying well let's have a 10-year vision you can't I've got no idea what the technology is going to look like in 10 years. We didn't know we'd be doing this 10 months ago. So let's not try and set false yeah, targets, as it were. I, do you know what? I um, struggle. But we do need windows. Yeah, of course. I, I, I struggle with, you know, you know, they, they go, well, what's the three-year plan? What's the five-year plan with your business, blah, blah, You know, I've, I, my mind doesn't work that way. You know, I'll, 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 I'll you know. Two years is probably in, in you know, what, what I've got mental capacity wise to forecast and deal with and so on. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, there's a long term vision. Yes, there is an overarching thing that we as a business, me personally, would like to achieve. But to say that that's a five year plan or a 10 year plan is almost just stupid because it's <laughs> all right. What's the next pandemic that comes along or, um, you know, 
do we find out that, or, or is there going to be a world war that goes on? Do you know what I mean? It's mm. just, it's, there's so many variables to mm. a period of 60 months or 120 months that you, you can't forecast that. that, that yeah, time. No, so, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the thing for me is not so much having a, exactly as you say, not having a sort of a false time frame to it. It's more a case of if we're at step A and normally you would to get to step C, you'd go via step B. Can we skip step B? Are there things we can do? Can we at least think ourselves outside of, to use that expression, outside of the box enough to see whether or not we can predict just one step ahead rather than 10 steps ahead? Because we can't do 10 steps ahead, but can we miss a step? And, and I'd use it again, use the, the office accommodation example. So when our counsellors, and as I say, I wasn't there, but when they were having the discussion about do we need to move offices, I'm prepared to bet, although if I'm wrong, I'm prepared to, to pay them out, um, but I'm prepared to bet that none of them said, we don't need an office. And yet now, because of COVID, the, some of them are prepared to have that kind of conversation to say, we don't need an office. We don't need a place to meet. We don't need these things in that same way. We, we can work in our communities. And so the reason they're doing that is because their framing has changed. They're, what the art of the possible has changed. And so that's the bit I want us to try and think of is, okay, can we just remove some of those artificial barriers in terms of our thinking, almost get back to a blank sheet of paper, but also just think one step ahead. Because if we can do that, that's, I think that's the best you can ask for. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely, definitely. Cool. All right, well, look, let's... Um, Let's, um, is your nickname Charvy by any chance? <laughs> it's not mine. So it's, it was my dad's. Um, and uh, my grandfather used to run a tailoring company called Charvy. So I've got somewhere, I've got a sort of ream of uh, labels that would go in the inside of a suit with Charvy. Um, and I've kind of just kind of appropriated it from him because, because as you'd expect as a person with ginger hair, my nicknames all, all revolved around that. <laughs> So I've, I've just moved myself away from that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I was looking. I see your, your, your Twitter name is HRV. Yeah, your yeah. Instagram name is HRV. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so there you are. That's why I asked. Um, right. Last question. A um, bit of a left field one and one that's going to put you on the spot a little bit um, mm -hmm. just to see how. how oh, we've been cut off. Pardon? <laughs> I said, oh, we've been cut off. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, literally, there we go. Look, I took that up, didn't I? There we go. Look, you, then you, you turn your computer off, you turn your, your camera off, it's going to hang up now. Um, so, so, right, it's a hypothetical, hypothetical situation. Um, yes. Two years from now, you've left the council um, and um, you are now the chairman of a, uh, a global um, consumer product company, okay? Um, bit of a weird setup. This it wouldn't happen in real life, but, but mm -hmm. a hypothetical situation. I'm going with it. Yeah, um, yeah. You've got to assemble. Um, you've had a board walk out on you, and you've got to assemble your last three members of your board. So you've got to choose a chief executive, a uh, a chief marketing officer, and a chief commercial officer. Um, the the premise of it is that you've got a product that could potentially change the world. It's almost like um, you know you've got the iPhone of, of, of this time, right? Um, but like I said, you need to assemble the correct board. Now you can choose anyone, um, celebrities, entrepreneurs, people you've worked with previously, um, dead or alive, so in, 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 you know, in, in history, um, but who do you choose as your chief executive as well and why? Who do you choose as your marketing or chief marketing officer and why? And who do you choose, choose as your chief commercial officer and why? Oh, that's a challenge. Um, Specific individuals, or can I talk more broadly? 
Yeah, specific individuals. Ah, yeah, yeah. But, it, but like I said, it doesn't have to be people you've previously worked with. It can be anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think in terms of the commercial one, it would be a previous um, chief finance officer that I've worked with, um, uh, only because he was the most maverick chief finance officer that I can think of. Um, because he knew the numbers and that was the important thing but he also knew not to be tied by the numbers um, and was prepared to think very very laterally and, and very liberally if you like in terms of the numbers not not break the rules but at the same time know where they are and know how to bend them and and be able to think outside of the sort of normal parameters um, that you might otherwise have from a from a commercial perspective uh, it's marketing's hard um because i haven't I haven't worked with a huge number of marketing officers one of the one of the challenges of um of local government is that we don't normally spend time in that marketing space and i think we should it's one of the areas that when i talk about branding i think we should spend much more time in that space um i suppose i'd be looking for uh, again somebody with a really strong um behavioral science approach um so i've forgotten his name and it'll come back to me which is terrible um but i've there's a gentleman who I've certainly read some of the literature of and watched. Ah, Rory Sutherland. There you go. Um, and I think he would be fantastic in that space because very much focused on human behaviour. Um, what is it you're trying to market and why? And and what is it that you're selling? Because to use your example, you're not selling an iPhone. Um, you're selling a way of life or you're selling something other than an iPhone. I think in, at the moment, you only have to look at all the iPhone adverts, all the phone adverts. They're selling cameras. They're not selling phones anymore. Um, so. So absolutely that, somebody with a really deep rooted sense of behavioral science underpinning the approach to marketing because of, as we said before about emotional intelligence and human behavior really underpinning what you're trying to do. The chief executive one's probably the hardest. Um, I can't pick me, can I? <laughs> that, would be, that would be cheating. Yeah, that would be. You're the chairman, so you can't be cheating. As well. I, 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 well, occasionally it happens, and I always think that's wrong. Um, so, <laughs> so, oh yeah, it's so, just, um, it does. I think uh, I think Mark Zuckerberg's the chairman of Facebook and the CEO, isn't he? Yeah, and I'm, I'm never quite I'm, as you'd expect the legal background. I'm never quite sure from a governance perspective that that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels yeah, to me as though that's a, a decidedly yeah. bad idea. Uh, it basically means that he cannot get sacked, doesn't it? Really? Yes. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> yes. Or he can, but it was his own fault. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Himself. So now the chief exec one. I'm, uh, yeah. No, I'm struggling with because I think I need to know much more about the business and much more about the point in time and what it is you're trying to achieve. Because it goes back to what I was saying earlier, and I know I'm cheating, but it goes back to what I said earlier in terms of the right chief executive for that moment. And, and what you're trying to, to develop. Certainly what I'd want in terms of personality is somebody who would push both the organization, but particularly me as chairman. Um, I would want somebody who's going to really make, not life difficult for the sake of making life difficult, but really make you think, um, provide those uh, provide those opportunities, but also particularly lead, lead the organization. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. Um, and, and that visibility, visible leadership um, in particular of, of whatever that business is in that regard. Makes sense. There we go. Well, you didn't give me a name, but you gave me an answer. So um, <laughs> that, is, uh, that is good enough. The, well, the mark um, of a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Arthur. It has been That's uh, right. thank you. a pleasure to get to know the person behind the job title. 
Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels, as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via, as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.